Well, good morning again. I'm glad you could be with us this morning to worship our Lord and to hear from His Word this morning. Welcome to those of you that are watching online. We're continuing in our service or in our series on 1 Thessalonians, so you can turn to chapter 4, verse 13 if you'd like. But we're talking about a very interesting topic this morning. It's a favorite topic of many, it's not of others, but it's a very, very important topic, and that is the topic of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, its its formal name would be eschatology, it just simply means last things, the things that are coming at the end. And, you know, it's common up front for us to understand a few things, or it's important for us to understand a few things up front. It's common to understand eschatology in two different realms. The one is what's called general eschatology, and the other is what's called personal eschatology. So let me explain. You know, general eschatology is asking general questions on the larger scale, for example, questions about the return of Christ itself, the timing, um, questions perhaps about the rapture, the Antichrist, the millennial kingdom. If you're familiar with your Bible, you're probably familiar with some of these phrases. Uh, Questions about the timing of judgment and resurrection, the new heavens and the new earth. All those kinds of questions are questions that fit in the realm of general eschatology. Personal eschatology is about the personal impact of these realities on us individually. That is, what's going to happen when you die? Questions about, will you spend eternity in heaven or in hell? Questions about the resurrection and what will it be like to receive your body back in glory? Questions about, what will eternal life be like living that? So we're all interested, of course, in the, in the general questions, Those, that's good, but Biblical exploration and study of eschatology should not just be in the general area. We need to answer all those general questions in ways that bear intensely on our personal life. And so when it comes to questions of general eschatology, there are some things about which we have very definitive answers that we can be 100% certain about. But there are also some answers that we have to questions that are maybe correct, possibly correct, but we're not 100% sure. And there are some questions that we give answers to that really our answers are just barely above the speculative range. And it's very, very important that we make sure that we know what fits into each category on that spectrum from speculation about what might be to certainty about what the Scripture declares definitively. And then how we apply each of those areas to our own souls personally so that we can produce an eagerness in us, a faithfulness, a hopefulness, and a readiness for Jesus' return. What are you hoping for at Jesus' return? Do you have anything specific in mind? I hope that all of our hopes are really aligned with what is certain in Scripture. Those are the best things to have our heart aligned with, by the way. What would you say you're really comforted about concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ? What's your main interest in eschatology? Hopefully it's not just detailed schemes or their fantasies, or the opposite of parodying and and debunking people's ideas. I mean, that can all be so much fun, but it's not the main point. 
And if that's where you live when you discuss eschatology, you've missed it. So let's pray this morning. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you as our Savior who came and died for our sins, who has been raised to glory on high, who reigns over all things from heaven, and who is coming back soon. And Lord Jesus, we look forward to your return, and we ask this morning that you would guide us through your Scripture so that we can be prepared as your people for your return in the best way possible. We pray these things for your glory in your church. Amen. So you can turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to go all the way through chapter 5, 11, uh, 5, verse 11 today. And we'll just read it as we go because it's so lengthy of a passage. But what we're going to see this morning is just as Paul did in writing this to the Thessalonian church, and the Thessalonians were encouraged to do with what Paul wrote to them, uh, we are also to do toward one another and other believers, and that is to encourage one another in the true doctrines of the return of Jesus Christ in such a way that it increases our knowledge, our faith, love, and hope. Those are the three things that have been brought up already in this letter and will be brought up again today at the end. And our joy as the church, that's the purpose, is to encourage one another so that these things increase in our lives. And so the Apostle Paul here in our passage is supplying two great encouragements regarding the return of Jesus Christ. So first in verses 13 to 18 at the end of chapter 4, we learn that we don't need to grieve over death itself or over the death of loved ones in Christ because we're going to be resurrected one day and we'll be forever united with our Lord Jesus and His church. The second encouragement in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is that we don't really have to worry too much about the timing of everything. We aren't going to be surprised when it actually happens Because when it does, we're just simply anticipating that we're going to get everything that's been promised to us in Christ. We're going to receive the fullness of the blessings of the kingdom, the blessings of our salvation. So if you remember Timothy back in chapter uh, 3, verse 6, he had, you know, after they had planted the church there, started the church in Thessalonica, they had to escape because they were being chased out. Uh, Paul is able to send Timothy back to encourage them and then get a report. Timothy comes back. He gives a report to the Apostle Paul in Corinth about how the church is doing, and so he writes this letter. And perhaps Timothy then was reporting some things to the Apostle about some misunderstandings that they had uh, in the church about a couple things. And so we see at the end of chapter 4 and verses 13 to 18, they seem to be concerned about their Christian brothers and sisters who've died recently and how does that all fit into what they're expecting in this great event when Jesus returns? And then second of all, in verses 1 through 11, they uh, need to know what is going to be the proper preparation for Jesus coming back, and how do they hold their confidence in the gospel until the very end? And so the first point, again, in verses 13 through 18, is we do not need to grieve over death or over the death of loved ones because as believers in Christ, if If they're believers in Christ, we're going to be resurrected, and we're going to forever be with our Lord Jesus and His church in glory. And so he begins by, in verses 13 to 15, this easily divides into two parts. There's the hope of of the return of our Lord Jesus. You can see that in chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. And then we get a general outline in verses 16 to 18 of Jesus' return. We have a general outline in verses 16 to 17, but before that, he talks about the hope 
that we have in the return of our Lord. So let me read the beginning. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So it appears that, that already at this church, some people who have recently professed faith in Christ have died. I mean, just in a matter of months, maybe some of natural causes, but but you think about these people and the persecution that they're enduring to say that I now am going to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and I'm going to bow my life to him, that I'm going to put my faith in Jesus Christ as the one who died for my sins. This puts them in a unique position in persecution. Perhaps some of them have already died as martyrs in just a matter of months. And the Thessalonians needed to learn how do they bring together their faith and their emotions at such a time. I mean, it's something that we all need to learn to do, and we struggle with, of course, is how do we bring together in the face of death both our emotions that are there as well as our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But their concern, it seems, is even more specific that they somehow, these, these new believers who had just put their faith in Christ and have now gone on, that they're going to somehow miss out on the great event that's coming soon. And so maybe they have a few questions like this, that are they going to be raised later? Are they going to miss out on this glorious day when Jesus comes back? And, you know, how's that all going to fit together with this age being consummated and the new one getting started? Uh, maybe even, I mean, did they do something wrong? I mean, do they die? Are they being punished, perhaps? You know, it doesn't make sense that a person would believe in Jesus Christ and then so quickly leave this life. You know, these are all good questions, and probably very sincere ones, but they're all very immature questions, that is meaning young questions, questions from young believers. And the Apostle Paul doesn't want them to stay in a state of ignorance and speculation about it, but to give them some confidence in what takes place. So the general truth here is you notice how he says, I don't want you to remain ignorant or uninformed. And that is he wants them to grow in knowledge. You know, blessing, that's a very good principle, blessing comes from knowledge. And knowledge of the Scriptures and of Christian theology is something that's going to be a key to you in your life as we grow to bring blessing into our life. By not growing in knowledge and just simply rehearsing speculations about things, that's not going to really bless our souls very deeply. So I hope you pursue knowledge in this area. And so in discussing this grieving topic, you know, the world grieves without hope, is what he says. It's tenuous at best. And what the world comes up with is largely false anyway, and what happens on the other side. I mean, at the time of the writing, and the Greeks and the Romans, they all had their myths and their stories and their speculations. But generally speaking, hopelessness is what reigned in death, because people just simply did not know what would happen. It's a scary thing. I mean, today in our culture, people are similar they have all their ideas and hopes, too, about what's going to happen when they die. If you ever want to get into an interesting conversation with someone, ask them what they think happens after you die. It's fascinating. It's confusing. It's dizzying. It's so sad because it's so hopeless. There's no real confidence in what they're saying. Really, 
often it boils down to some form of nihilism and despair that this life is really without ultimate meaning. But that is such a contrast to Christians, on the other hand, who have, we have a strong, very specific, sure understanding about Jesus Christ and what happens when Christians die. Therefore, we grieve in a radically different way over our lost Christian relatives and friends. Perhaps you've noticed this going to funerals and memorials that you've attended. Christian funerals and memorials are so much more fun. I mean, yes, we grieve at the loss of people and this place that they had in our lives and how God used them, but ultimately we know they have received their reward and they are in glory and we'll see them again. And that's what this passage is about. Is so much more different. You know, many cultures have used sleep, as our, as our apostle does here, as a euphemism for death. In fact, it comes up three times in our passage here, verse 13, verse 14, verse 15. And perhaps this euphemism originally was inspired by the fact that, you know, somebody, they look, when somebody dies, they look like they're sleeping. But they're resting from their labor, if you will. But for the Christian, this is a particularly appropriate metaphor because bodily death really is only temporary. And we are awaiting the glorious resurrection of our bodies. Scripture, just to give you a couple passages, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And of course, the famous passage in the New Testament in John eleven twenty four that we use most often at our funerals, Martha said to him, to Jesus, I know that he, speaking of Lazarus, will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So the reference to sleep here in our passage, of course, is to the body. It's not referencing the soul. So some of you might be familiar with various soul sleep theories. Some are modern, some are very ancient, but they all are some form of heresy. The soul upon death goes immediately to heaven or hell. And for us as believers, it goes immediately to the presence of our Lord in heaven. I mean, think about some of the very common examples that we even have in the New Testament. But for example, the thief next to, on the cross next to Jesus, who said to him after he put his faith in him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Or you think about the stoning of, of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, and, and as he's dying, and his body will be dead soon, as he says, Lord, receive my spirit. Or you think about the Apostle Paul's hopes himself as he writes, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You see, the doctrine or the knowledge here that we're, we're reading about in this very opening section of our passage today, the, what, the thing that brings hope is, is this coming of our resurrected Lord Jesus. The word is, uh, you know, in, in Greek, parousia is talking about a royal visit. It's talking about the presence of the king. And that's what changes everything and gives us hope because on that day of revelation is going to be so powerful and so personal that all 
the believing dead of all the ages of the history of redemption are going to be coming with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be resurrected in glory and united together to be with Christ forever. So there's nothing to grieve over or fear because our soul and body on that day are going to be reunited in wholeness and integrity of who we are and in perfection in body and soul. And we'll be, sin will be no more. And we'll behold God with all of our faculties and enjoy His glory forever. The Apostle talks about we believe, speaking as if it's a creed or a confirmed knowledge that since Jesus died and rose again, so likewise God's going to bring with Him those who are His in the same manner of glory. They're newly resurrected bodies. In Philippians 3.20 it says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. This is in accordance, the Apostle says, with the word of the Lord, the word that the Lord Jesus Himself spoke when He was with us and among us. He's probably not referring here to some kind of a prophetic word even through Paul or Silas, but a reference to Jesus' ministry and the things that He taught us. Well, that's the hope that's laid out for us, and now we get a general outline of the return of our Lord in verses 16 to 18. Let me read that to you. It says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the Lord Jesus Himself is going to descend from the Father's right side toward earth, of course, and this is going to be a worldwide, universally acknowledged event, as you can see. It's not secret, because we've got a loud command being issued, loud trumpets being blasted, right? And, and this summoning of the dead to rise to life. And it's not clear whether these are separate sounds, overlapping, sequential, whether you could even distinguish between them. But the purpose here appears to be that this is the day when Jesus returns, the summoning of the dead in Christ to rise to their glory, the time when their bodies and souls will be united again in perfection. It's one of the most amazing things to think about, that those who died in Christ are going to be returning with the Lord Jesus, and perhaps they have the, the better view coming and honor, but that's certainly going to be the majority of the believers, because that's going to include all the believers of all times and all ages in the whole history of redemption. However, neither situation is necessarily advantageous. All the timing is inconsequential when Jesus returns in this sense. And those who remain are talking about those who are alive at the time when Jesus returns. They're going to be raptured or snatched up or swept up. And the Apostle Paul uses the word we here because he believes that it could happen even in his lifetime. Of course, it's not like skeptics want to say that Paul was so set on that, and then when it didn't happen, he had to change his theology because he was so disappointed that Jesus didn't return. Because you can read elsewhere 
where he writes of the nearness of the coming of Jesus with the certainty regarding his own death in Philippians and in Corinthians and 2 Timothy. He's simply writing in the spirit and the teaching of Jesus, you see. Jesus taught us to be watchful. And it's a fascinating study. If you want to go back, it's a good some homework and look in the gospel accounts because many times Jesus will tell us about the urgency of his coming and many times he'll talk to us about the signs of his coming. In fact, the Apostle Paul is even setting us an example on how we ought to speak in the same manner that we can be expectant yet waiting at the same time. And the clouds here are a reference to the glorious presence of God. It's a common reference throughout Scripture. The air where you meet them in the air, is a reference to the realm of spiritual powers where Jesus is conquered. I mean, what greater place to proclaim victory than to be above all the enemies and looking down on them? It's a good meeting place to show dominance and final victory over the world and its sinfulness and over the demons. And those believers who are there, they're going to receive the resurrection glory at the same time. They will join Christ and His people. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, not all shall sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Do you notice the overwhelming focus in this passage on fellowship? Do you notice that? Let's go back and look at that again. Verses 13 to 18, it's, it's about this new beginning of a new and everlasting fellowship. In fact, that's, that's the heart of the passage's encouragement to these people who are concerned about those who die in the Lord. It's that we're going to all be raised on the last day when Jesus returns, and we're going to forever be with the Lord and with one another. In fact, the word that's used here for meeting the Lord, apontason, is a technical term for the sending out of a delegation to receive a dignitary and escort him on the final leg of his journey. That's what that word is, is means. It's a technical term. It's a well-established Greek and Roman custom. Purposeful image here to give to us as our readers. I mean, Cicero used this about the reception that people had to Julius Caesar, and then later to Octavian. In fact, in Josephus later on, we'll, account, we'll record the citizens of Rome going out to meet their new emperor Vespasian, and at first, the leading citizens would go out, and then others who just couldn't wait for him to come, and then still others until almost the whole city is out meeting the emperor and then escorting him on the roadside, singing and shouting as he comes in in his glory. That's an awesome, purposeful image that's chosen when Jesus returns, because all these saints that he has redeemed from all ages will be accompanying him in glory and those who are alive at His coming will be raised imperishable as well and go out and join Him in the air. In Matthew 25, 6, this is also brought up, this word about the bridal party and how they'll go out to meet the groom. Same word, same idea. Even in Acts 28 at the end, the Apostle Paul and his entry into Rome, this word is used to talk about the receiving of Him. So the idea might be that when Christ comes to this very earth as we know it, escorted by all His saints, he comes to establish his kingdom on this earth and what we would consider the millennial kingdom. However, this word and its immediate context don't demand this interpretation. I mean, some will hold that Jesus will return to heaven for a while and then come back again later. Some Christians also believe that, no, he'll come and he'll come to the fully 
renovated earth at this time, and it will be the final state of the new heavens and the new earth. So there are different understandings of the passage. But we need to understand that this is a general outline. This is a brief account. It doesn't comment on the other kinds of questions we might have about the nature of our resurrection bodies, for example, or when, when do the unbelievers get resurrected, or what about judgment day? What about hell? What about the new heavens and the earth? What about this final reign of our Lord Jesus? What's it like? And many other details about the end of the age and the beginning of the new one. And by integrating biblical passages, we can answer some of those questions to varying degrees of certainty. But we have to be cautious about forcing our integration schemes, especially dogmatically so. There is legitimate room for Christians to hold differing opinions on a number of details. And Christians throughout church history have been able to do that in harmony and respect. And we're not going to discuss any of those details today because today I want to make a different point, much more important point, very clearly. And that is that we have to maintain the integrity of the text itself and enjoy 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's why it's here. The temptation, oh, I know, is strong, especially for some of us to look at this passage only in systematic theology terms and try to figure out how it fits into our scheme and our timeline and other passages of Scripture. And of course, there's a place and a time to do that, and it can be very encouraging to your faith. But I would ask you, if that's your disposition, that you do that a different day. You do that at a different time, on your own time. You know, some of us, maybe we just need to control our minds from eschatological fidgeting for a time. This text does stand on its own. We have to realize that, and we should be greatly encouraged by what is here without having to look elsewhere. Can you rest content in the Word of God the way God gave it to us? Can you receive texts about the end times, each on their own, for their specific encouragements? In other words, is there enough here for you to be content with what God has given you to encourage you? Verse 18 tells us exactly what we're supposed to do with the text, right? Look at verse 18. It says, therefore, encourage one another with these words, to comfort, to encourage one another. We don't have to grieve over our, our own death or the death of other believers because we're going to be resurrected one day, and we're going to be forever united with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we're to fortify the faith and hope of our fellow Christians. This was written, this text was not written first and foremost, for academic curiosity, or mostly what we see, pseudo-academic curiosity, people just sharing their opinions. But it was written for personal comfort. And, and that's where we're to start in applying it to our hearts before we begin our mining ex expeditions for hints of the timing of events. I hope you see that speculative frenzy really distracts from the hope of this passage as it's designed to teach it. I've seen many people fall down that path. So may we use this passage at the right time in the right place to comfort one another, to grieve those that have lost loved ones in the Lord. And we do that more and more as we get older and we find out that, wow, more and more of our friends are in glory and they're waiting for that day of reunion and fellowship with us all in Jesus. So, 
even more to the point, we should use this passage to excite one another about the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't miss that word. His presence in the text among us. We all long for His presence, but this presence will be the most open glory that we'll ever see. It'll be amazing. Think about this passage, and it encourages us to think about our resurrection into glory. What will that be like? I was trying to figure it all out this morning, but I couldn't get there. I mean, it's just amazing to think about what is all involved in the resurrection. What's going to be all involved in the perfection of us, body and soul? It's astounding. This passage encourages us with that. And what's it going to be like to fellowship with believers of all the ages, of all the people groups around the world, of all time, and to fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ? There's no way we can conceive of anything close to how wonderful that will be. So this is really an encouraging passage. And I know it's one we use often to encourage one another at the death of loved ones and at Christian funerals. So encourage one another in the true doctrines, in the doctrines that we are certain of regarding the return of Christ, in such a way that it really increases knowledge and our faith and our love and our hope and our joy as the church of Jesus Christ. Well, second, his point in the beginning of chapter 5 is that, you know, we're not going to be surprised when it happens. In other words, it's all going to make sense when Jesus comes back. And we don't really need to worry about the timing all that much anyway, because you're not going to figure it out. So, because when that happens, when Jesus returns, we're going to get the fullness of our salvation. So, in one sense, who cares what the timing of events are? It doesn't make as much of a big difference. And so, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, verses 1 to 3, he gives us the wrong way to prepare for the coming of the Lord. Verses 1 to 3 is the wrong way to prepare. Verses 4 to 6, or 4 to 8, is the right way to prepare for the coming of the Lord. And then finally, verses 9 through 11 talk to us and close it out by asking us, causing us to think about what it means to truly anticipate, to truly really look forward to that day. So let's begin with the wrong way to be preparing for the day of the Lord in verses 1 to 3. He says, now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So, you know, the, the Thessalonian, back to the original context, the Thessalonian church might have some timing questions because of all these persecutions they're enduring. I mean, that's been the cry of the church since the very beginning. How long, O Lord? How many of the Psalms even express that? How long? How long do we have to wait? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And so they likely also had questions on being ready. I mean, were they ready? How, how do you know if you're ready? Are you ready? At times and seasons here are mentioned, and they're most likely synonyms here, that is not two separate things, but just a way of referencing the times and seasons. So the wrong preparation for the day of the Lord includes setting of dates. And even preoccupation with speculating on supposed events and current events for predicting the end. It's not just that as long as you don't put a date on the calendar, you're okay. No, if you're preoccupied with 
current events, supposed events, speculations, and all that stuff, that that's all you think about, then basically you're pretty much doing the same thing, setting times and dates. At first, it seems like this is entirely appropriate. At first, it seems like, well, this is the best way. This is the prudent way to be prepared, some might say. And apparently so. That's the case in America especially. I mean, you think about the number of Christian TV shows dedicated to this over the years. And the novels that have been written. And the movies that have been made. And the podcasts that are still being produced. And internet sites. And conferences and bookstores, and it goes on and on and on, the speculation. Now, a certain amount of imaginative thinking, of course, is natural, and it can be biblically valuable and appropriate to build up our faith. But we have to remember that even the disciples, after the resurrection, were corrected by Jesus and refocused with these words. Acts 1, 6 and following. And so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. Same words. Which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So it sounds like there's something more important to be doing. It might have something to do with missions, much more important than speculation on the end times. No one knows. No one can know the time except God the Father. Right? Even Jesus, when he took on his incarnate and in, in his human nature, and he had a human will and a human consciousness, speaks out of his human nature to reemphasize this point to us even, where he says, of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. So if you think you know, or if you think you might know, or you think you might know significantly better than other Christians, you're treading in very dangerous waters. Think about how Jesus spoke and what he actually said and warned about. I mean, the Thessalonians knew about the day of the Lord. The apostle had already taught them. They knew it's coming. They knew he was coming and his, the meaning of the whole thing. They had the Old Testament prophets to read. They knew when Jesus, Jesus was going to be coming back in judgment and blessing. They knew it would come about suddenly because the apostle taught them so well. In fact, it's going to be unexpected like a, like a thief in the night without any advance notice. It's going to be unavoidable like the labor of a pregnant woman. It'll be sudden and then there's no escape because it will go to the end. In fact, when people in this world are so secure, politically secure or economically secure and personally secure, and, and he's, he's making fun of them here in the apostle and says, they go about saying, oh, it's peace and safety or they go around telling everyone, look at this great world we created. Isn't it wonderful? Well, that's when the Lord's going to return and execute his judgment on all of sinful humanity. They put their trust and their hope in themselves and their sinfulness. So if we know this so well, which we would all admit, I would think, like the Thessalonians do in, in verse 2, we know this, that we can't know the times and the dates, then why? And it is particularly a North American evangelical thing. 
Why do we, as North American evangelicals, spend so much time and effort trying to figure this stuff out? In fact, within the last decade, many have been shown to be fools. Might Jesus have more important things for us to be doing, thinking about? You know, if it's not really about speculations and predictions, even if they're well-intentioned and even if they're less than the bizarre ones that are out there, what is the best way as a Christian to be prepared for the day of the Lord, for the return of Christ? That's where the apostle goes next in verses 4 to 8, when he says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So you see the three contrasts that are made consistently here in this passage between the world and its system and the people who belong to the world and then the Christians, those who belong to the kingdom of God, those who are sons and daughters, those who are believers in Jesus. So the contrast is between darkness and light, between being asleep and being awake, between being unsuspecting and being expecting. See these three images, these, these three terms, are utilized to talk about the spiritual and moral realms of our lives, as is very common in the Bible. You see, the world belongs to darkness. The world belongs to, di- to the night. Darkness implies ignorance. They're sleeping spiritually, asleep. Wickedness takes place over the cover of the darkness, and drunkenness and carousings are the way they live their lives, and many such things like that. But Christians belong to the light, to the day, and have knowledge, and are awake spiritually, and are living in self-control, and sobriety, and productivity in their lives for the gospel. In fact, I wonder whether or not this might even be another point here to point out that sobriety should also apply to not being drunk or out of control on eschatological speculations. In other words, be reasonable, And be self-controlled as you think through the doctrines of the return of Jesus Christ. See, we're fundamentally different from people who belong to the world. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. By God's grace, He made us a new creature. And we're spiritually alive, and so our lifestyle shows it. The Spirit indwells us. We're very different than the people of the world. And we're to remember this and continue in this and gain strength and confidence from this. And we're supposed to put on the full armor as a disciplined soldier. Another passage that speaks about the return of Christ uses the same imagery. It's in Romans 13, starting in verse 11. And there the apostle writes, And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You know, the most important pieces for vital defense and protection are the breastplate, covers your chest and your helmet, 
that covers your head. And you notice that faith and love are attached to the breastplates and hope to the helmet. This goes back to chapter 1, doesn't it? I mean, those were the three Christian graces the apostles saw develop so rapidly in this church. Here they're brought up at the end. He was giving thanks to God for developing these things in the Thessalonian believers. So these are the most important graces that are vital to our Christian life. Now, obviously, it's not all there is to the Christian life, but everything in the Christian life is going to be based on faith, love, and hope. You know, this is how we prepare for the day of the Lord. You see, it's actually not that tricky. You've already probably been preparing. It's to keep on increasing in faith, in your love, in hope, all centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we prepare. And in doing so, you see, we're not going to be surprised when Jesus arrives, even though we don't know the date and we never will. In fact, there are so many parables recorded that Jesus told about preparations, as you know. You might want to review some of them in light of this passage in 1 Thessalonians. There are a lot of them that he gave. So then we get to verses 9 through 11, and not only are we supposed to be ready but we're supposed to be anticipating it, looking forward to it. We want Jesus to come back. Like, that would be great if that happened today. We want him to come back. And so we read then in verses 9 to 11, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are alive, awake, or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So there's good reason you know, to be apprehensive about the day of the Lord. I mean, it's not going to be all, you know, some lack of, of, of level of fear is not a good idea. That means you're probably not ready for the day. But as Christians, we're more focused on anticipating the blessings that we're going to receive. God has destined us for salvation. Salvation from our sins, not wrath for our sins, because Jesus already took the wrath for our sins. So we don't fear His return as though it's going to be some kind of anguish and punishment for us. It will be for those who don't know him. But for us who know him, Jesus already died for our sins, all of them, so that we can now then live with him forever. We, the saved through Jesus Christ, are going to receive the fullness of that salvation on that final day. And that's going to be the case, whether you're here or gone at the time, right? Jesus came first to die for sins, second time he comes to bring fullness of salvation. So because of God's purposes in Christ for us, and because the Father sent the Son to die for us, and that Jesus died for our sins and was raised to life, we have hope for eternal life on that day that is absolutely secure. Then we get to verse 11, and it says, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. Sound familiar? Sounds just like verse 18, doesn't it? If you go back there, you see, this whole section is a unit and is brought together. Encourage, again, mutually encourage one another. We're not to be fearful of death or the day of the Lord. We're to support one another, to excel still more, as the apostle told us earlier, in faith, love, and hope. And so we should use the doctrines of the return of Christ or eschatological doctrines to really build up one another. The things that we're absolutely certain about in scriptures, not to tear down one another or to make fun of other people's viewpoints or try to dogmatically force ours that are on others that aren't really 100% certain. 
We're to use the, the true and certain doctrines of the return of our Lord to encourage one another to grow and, and to cheer one another on in the pursuit of holiness. See, we're not going to be surprised when Jesus comes back. You know, when He comes back, then it's going to like, ah, that makes sense. Makes total sense why He's here right now. Not going to be a problem. So we don't need to be worrying about the timing that much because we should be anticipating really what's going to happen in the receiving of all of our blessings. You see, verses 9 and 10 are really the heart of this whole passage. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't need to worry. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. That's the conclusion and, and the unifying idea to the whole section. Here's our confidence. And, and, to, and this is how we prepare for that day. It's by maintaining a confidence in the gospel. And this story in verses 9 and 10, that's how we remain confident. And we continue to grow in the graces of faith, love, and hope. That's how we prepare ourselves for that day. And in the meantime, of course, the world's pursuits are going to taunt us because they're going to tell you to run after something else. And it can be very tempting in our own lives. There will be persecutions that come our way to give up on these things. There will be temptations to become obsessed with fanciful speculations about the end, as if somehow that's going to strengthen and deepen your faith. But we need to stay strong and encourage one another with these true doctrines of the return of Jesus in such a way that our knowledge grows, that our faith, love, and hope grow, that our joy grows together. So in the letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is teaching them how to live, we might say, how to live as an eschatological people. In other words, we might say, just like our title does this morning, how do we live in the coming of the Lord to live with His people? That's our greatest anticipation. What does it mean to be a people anticipating that the Lord is going to come to live with us? You know, we're looking forward to our resurrection and glory that final day. We're going to be perfected, forever united with Christ and His church. We're going to receive everything Jesus bought for us on the cross, get the fullness of our salvation, everything promised to us by the Father and purchased by the Son. So the day of the Lord is going to be a very personal, very powerful return of Christ, of course, and it's not a religious myth or simply some sectarian hope, as our society would assert, so that they can hide. See, the world doesn't discern this, but we do, and we will increasingly discern it the more we pray, the more we study the Scriptures, the more we encourage one another, and the more we see our brothers and sisters die in the Lord. That will strengthen us. Have you ever noticed that, that one of the greatest blessings that we get from our brothers and sisters in Christ is their death? Because when they die, we are reminded that our future is with Jesus Christ, and we're going to be with them someday. It's a wonderful blessing. That's one thing perhaps you could do is to think through some of those beloved Christians you have in your own life who've gone on and ask yourself just specifically, so where is so-and-so? And think about the glory of where they live and such a reunion that it'll be on that final day of resurrection glory and the holy fellowship that we're going to share. So finally, let's remember to do the things that exactly the passage tells us to do. The application is really simple because all you got to do is look at verse 18 and then verse 11 and you know exactly what to do. 
So he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's what we're supposed to do. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. So let's do that uh, together, Calvary. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord God, we do pray that the knowledge we gain from your word today would be something that we could use to bless one another and other Christians around the world that we know. I pray that you would give us the words to say, the wisdom on when to say them and how to say them, and to bring them to passages like this in 1 Thessalonians that can really encourage them in their faith. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are returning soon and that you're going to return in such a way, it's such open glory, it's going to be overwhelming and righteousness will reign on this earth. And we as your people will be brought into the fullness of resurrected glory where we can behold you with all the faculties of soul and body and give you the glory that's to your name. And we'll see the kingdom in its glory and we'll get to participate in that kingdom and all of its blessings. So for now, we pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith, our love, and our hope and our joy as your church. And we pray these things for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen.